Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Stephen Zunes, professor of politics at the University of San Francisco, who examines how Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine exposes U.S. double standards on the issues of human rights and international law. Chris Velasquez with Gamers for Peace who talks about how his group engages with video game players to reach out to young people, offering alternatives to military service. And Chris Finan, executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship, who discusses his group's work opposing Republican laws that censor classroom discussion of LGBTQ issues, gender identity, and America's history of racism. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Since Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Western sanctions have hit Russia's economy hard, making life more difficult for millions of the nation's working families. But Moscow's wealthiest bankers took their money out of Russia years ago after the first wave of sanctions followed Putin's annexation of Crimea in 2014. Now, a new batch of financial documents released as part of the Pandora Papers by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists has revealed leaked data from 14 offshore financial service companies. These documents confirm that elite Moscow bankers created a mix of shell corporations and offshore holding companies worth billions of dollars. By some estimates, close to 20% of Russia's wealth is stashed in offshore jurisdictions like Cyprus, the Seychelles, the British Virgin Islands, and the United States. The flight of Russia's wealth has been supported by big banks and a global industry of professionals who specialize in providing rich clients with shell companies, trusts, and other secretive offshore schemes. But a proposed anti-money laundering bill called the Enablers Act remains stalled in the U.S. Congress. The act would require a broad range of professionals, such as attorneys and art dealers, to perform basic due diligence on their elite clients' sources of wealth. Thirty-six years after the People's Power Movement forced Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos to flee, his son Ferdinand Jr. is the leading candidate to be the next president of the Philippines in an election to be held on May 9th. Ferdinand Jr., who was nicknamed Bong Bong, had various run-ins with the law for tax evasion. He is using a slick social media campaign to wipe away the legacy of torture, corruption, and staggering debt left by his father's 20-year rule. The Washington Post reports that Bong Bong has developed a youthful following who have no memory of the dictatorship, the corruption, or the abuses of the past. Marcos's defenders talk of a golden era in the Philippines in the 1980s. Ferdinand Marcos and his wife Imelda were accused of looting as much as $10 billion from the government before fleeing to Hawaii in 1986 and have succeeded in avoiding jail time despite multiple convictions. Recent polls in the Philippines' presidential campaign find Bongbong Marcos with a 2-to-1 lead. The election comes after five years of the pro-Marcos regime of Rodrigo Duterte, best known for his murderous crackdown on drug dealers and the jailing of critics. 
Duterte's daughter, Sarah, is running for vice president with Marcos Jr. For the people of America's impoverished Navajo nation, drinking water is scarce. About 30% of the roughly 173,000 Navajos lack running water, according to a report from the U.S. Water Alliance and Dig Deep, an international nonprofit. Obstacles to improving access to potable water on the reservation include large distances between homes, scarce natural water sources, jurisdictional issues, and contamination from naturally occurring arsenic and industries like uranium mines. But according to a recent Christian Science Monitor report, the sickness and death caused by the COVID-19 pandemic could be a catalyst for progress. Almost 1,700 people died from the coronavirus, and in mid-2020, members of the tribe had the highest per capita infection rate in the country. The fact that many Navajo didn't have access to water to wash their hands during the pandemic drew the attention of some members of Congress to find solutions. With new funding from the Pandemic Cares Act and a proposed $6.7 billion in additional funding for tribal water infrastructure, two dozen Navajo and federal agencies are now working together to improve water access. The partnerships have overcome decades of hostile and paternalistic relations between the Navajos and the U.S. government, dating back to the tribe's forced relocation in 1860. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Most of the world's governments have condemned Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. That's cost tens of thousands of lives, destroyed entire cities, and according to United Nations estimates, has created 4.3 million external refugees and another 6.5 million people displaced internally. War crimes have also been widely reported, with Ukrainian civilians being deliberately targeted or executed by Russian forces. On March 15th, the United States Senate unanimously passed Senate Bill 546, which encourages member states of the International Criminal Court to petition the ICC and other international forums to investigate war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by the Russian military in Ukraine. Yet, like Russia, the United States doesn't recognize the jurisdiction of the ICC to investigate or prosecute war crimes. Through successive U.S. wars abroad, the double standards Washington follows in adhering to international law and human rights is obvious for the rest of the world to see. Contemporary examples include the unprovoked 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq that killed hundreds of thousands of civilians and current U.S. military aid provided to Saudi Arabia and the UAE in their war in Yemen, where it's estimated that more than 370,000 people have been killed and 10,200 children have died or been wounded as a direct result of the fighting. Your reporter spoke with Stephen Zunez, professor of politics at the University of San Francisco and co-author of the book Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution in Northwest Africa. Here, Professor Zunez examines the double standards observed by the U.S. 
when it comes to human rights and international law. Biden is quite correct to say that no country can unilaterally change its international boundaries. No country can expand its territory by force. And yet the United States is the only country in the world that has formally recognized Israel's illegal annexation of Syria's Golan Heights, which it conquered in 1967, and Morocco's um, illegal annexation of the entire nation of Western Sahara, a country that's been recognized by over 80 other uh, governments. We're saying these countries can expand their territories by force. These countries can unilaterally change international boundaries. But it becomes an issue for us only when an adversary does that sort of thing. Well, Stephen, one of the major issues wrapped up in this is uh, the International Criminal Court. And maybe you can explain to our listeners a bit about the history of the International Criminal Court that neither the United States or Russia uh, recognizes or participates in. The International Criminal Court was uh, established in 1999. It was following the um, international war crimes tribunals for those who had committed genocide and and, and other atrocities in the uh, Balkans Wars, as there's another one uh, that uh, met in regard to the um, uh, war crimes in Rwandan uh, genocide. But there's a sense that having these ad hoc courts may have seemed like victor's justice in a sense. And so there should be an international uh, criminal uh, court that would try all such cases. So they only were to apply to uh, cases where there was not, where the judicial system was, was not fairly prosecute people who were obviously guilty. So a country where the, that did prosecute their own war criminals or whatever, uh, that would be fine. But uh, they, um, you know, they don't only take the cases where the domestic courts uh, couldn't handle the situation fairly. President Clinton signed it. The uh, Senate uh, never ratified it. He never placed it before the Senate for ratification, in fact. In 1999, or soon, soon after the court was founded, the um, U.S. passed a law that there'd be no U.S. funding for any uh, anything that the International Criminal Court did. And then in 2003, a law was passed that forbid the United States from cooperating in any way whatsoever with the uh, World Court, that uh, the United States would uh, suspend foreign aid to any country that joined the World Court, though there was a revised escape clause that's been enacted in most cases since then. And it even uh, authorized the president to do whatever means necessary, um, which was basically the code for um, military force, to free any Americans or Americans uh, or of uh, allied nations held by or on behalf of the International Criminal Court. That's why it was nicknamed the Hague Invasion Act. I should quickly add, though, the United States, when they started to investigate war crimes in the Afghan war, you know, looking at the Taliban, of course, but also looking at the United States and the U.S.-backed Afghan uh, um, army, uh, the uh, Trump administration um, ended up putting sanctions on the top uh, uh, leaders of the world court and their families. Um, you know, they couldn't come to the United States, they could seize their assets, et cetera, et cetera. Biden lifted it a few months after he came to office, but then the Biden administration turned around and attacked the ICC uh, for uh, uh, launching an investigation uh, into uh, possible war crimes by Hamas and the Israeli government. Our view was that we should, they shouldn't even investigate Israel, um, and it was biased for them to do so, even though it's the first time in the dozens of cases that they've ever looked at Israel. So, you know, it's, just, you know, it's, it's crazy that it's not just both, both, the, both the far right, but even 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 the Biden administration, you know, has this uh, thing against the uh, world court, despite it uh, actually uh, functioning fairly well. 
So the, you know, the U.S. has been very, very hostile to this idea of an international criminal court until people started thinking maybe that would be a good place to put Putin and some of his henchmen. Professor Zunas, is there anything that we can do as a nation to move forward to provide credibility and to force our government to participate in equal justice when it comes to human rights violations in international law? In terms of Ukraine, we shouldn't do whataboutism in the sense that uh, Russia and Putin need to be held accountable for these crimes. And, and, and again, the, the invasion itself is a flagrant violation of international legal norms. But we should say, yes, and these other violations of international law should be – people should be held accountable. Not yes, but yes, and. And I think in, in a funny way, the tragedy unfolding in Ukraine has put international law on the table, and international law can be a real – tool for progressive forces who are trying to challenge America's imperial world and militaristic worldview. International law and international legal institutions are our allies, and we need to promote them despite their imperfections and, and use this tragedy around Ukraine as an, as an opening to uh, encourage a more consistent and, and ethical and law-based U.S. foreign policy. That was Stephen Zunas, professor of politics at the University of San Francisco and co-author of the book, Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution in Northwest Africa. Find more analysis and commentary on the double standards observed by the U.S. on the issues of human rights and international law by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. According to the gaming industry, three out of every four or 244 million people in the U.S., play video games, an increase of 32 million people since 2018. Much of that recent growth was fueled by the coronavirus pandemic. And according to the National Institutes of Health, 81% of online gamers are male, with a mean age of 28 years old. Research shows that for many players, the social aspects of the game were the most important factor in playing. The group Veterans for Peace got on the gaming bandwagon with a project called Gamers for Peace, in which military veterans enter gaming spaces to build relationships with a demographic that's also sought after by U.S. military recruiters. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Chris Velasquez, who served as a U.S. Marine in both Iraq and Afghanistan from 2004 to 2010. He grew up playing video games and finds them a good way to connect with fellow veterans. Here, Velasquez, who's active in the Gamers for Peace project, talks about the outreach he and others engage in to present young people with alternatives to military recruitment and service. Gamers for Peace, a lot of us are aware we're a community of gamers, veterans, allies, accomplices, friends, family of people that have served and that is concerned about the military's presence, active presence, recruiting and, and grooming children for acceptance of state violence and participating in warfare. We're concerned about that, and we push back on that actively by streaming content. We, we have four channels of change where we're forming our own esports teams to compete directly against the Army esports teams in the various games they play. So when they are at tournaments, uh, there's an active counter voice there talking about other options that are more peace oriented that create and foster a culture of inclusion, safety, and peace, uh, nonviolence, and organizing, community organizing. 
So the range of games that are played by the military and by everybody is wide. We see time and time again that studies show that violent video games in and of themselves are not the issue. It is the context and the culture that is found in gaming adjacent spaces. And this is what the Army and the Navy, uh, even as far as violent extremist groups like right-wing violent extremism or ISIS or uh, other organizations like that, they sit in spaces that for like Call of Duty or Fortnite or Minecraft even, which is a sandbox world where you dig and build. You just build whatever your heart content. There's no real thing going on other than what you create to Call of Duty, which is a first person shooter. That's a what's known as a military sim uh, shooter. You're stepping in, you're simulating the military experience and they, they advertise themselves on their realism. And that's an entry-level mil, mil sim game. There are much more graphic and intense and realistic military shooters out there as well. There's value in all those games across the spectrum for a lot of things, sublimation, for like uh, helping vets stay in touch or deal with their own PTSD as, as part of their own therapeutic value. The problem lies in that the culture that surrounds it is capitalized by people that glorify that or that use that and talk about and engage in behavior that starts talking about glorifying the military experience. Uh, so that's why we see recruiters in that space and developing parasocial relationships, one-sided relationships where uh, the viewer, because there's an interactive nature, is giving information and it's single-way mass communication uh, with an illusion of reciprocity. So it's not it's not so much that the games are violent and that they're bad. It's that there's issues with uh, who's populating the spaces around them uh, and who's controlling the narrative and the culture around that. We see uh, a links links to Gamergate from uh, years ago and incel culture uh, and violent extremism all linked to this space that's been cultivated out of hobby and community for gamers that stay in touch and want to play games and enjoy enjoy their activity to people that are capitalizing on that for other purposes, like the United States military and uh, extremist groups. So, Chris Velasquez, it's not that Veterans for Peace is introducing your own games into the space. It's that you're playing the games that are out there and trying to have a different influence on the people you find in those spaces. Is that right? Yeah. Gamers for Peace and Veterans for Peace so much isn't designing games. We play games. We play D&D. We stream content. So uh, Mondays nights, we play uh, tabletop games. So um, and Twitch, D&D is a very popular game that's played. Dungeons and Dragons, rolling dice and creating uh, cooperative storytelling. So on Fridays, we play first-person shooters and talk about uh, current events and give context to how the military-industrial complex and the war experiences relates to it. So we talk about things like that. You know, so we're not so much designing our own games, though we we do uh, know that there are a lot of game makers out there and developers that are working in, in creating content that is other than the mainstream, more violent content. We would love to develop games eventually. There's there's lots of avenues by which we want to promote a culture of peace and push back on the um, the war drums, really. It sounds like it's a successful way to reach people that maybe wouldn't reach otherwise. It very much is. And more than that, it's also we do direct action and push towards legislative work and actually organizing around these things uh, and to take action to actually make it so that recruiters can't recruit here. 
That was Chris Velasquez with the group Gamers for Peace. Learn more about the work of Gamers for Peace and Veterans for Peace by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the past year, the Republican Party has launched an aggressive attack on public education that appears clearly aimed at energizing right-wing voters in advance of this November's congressional midterm election. Since January 2021, 42 states have introduced bills or taken other steps that would restrict teaching critical race theory or limit how teachers can discuss racism, sexism, and gender identity. Seventeen states have imposed these bans and restrictions, either through legislation or other avenues. According to analysis from the group PEN America, more than 1,000 books have been banned in 86 school districts in 26 states across the U.S. Florida's Don't Say Gay Law bans instruction or classroom discussion about LGBTQ issues for kindergarten through third grade and empowers parents to sue the school district over teachings they don't like. Inexplicably, on April 18th, the Florida Education Department rejected 54 mathematics textbooks for its K-12 curriculum, citing the math book's inclusion of critical race theory and common core learning concepts. Your reporter spoke with Chris Finan, executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship, who talks about his group's work opposing Republican laws that censor classroom discussion of LGBTQ issues, gender identity, and America's history of racism. I've, I've been in this business now for 40 years. I started, you know, in the early 80s, right in the beginning of the last culture war, um, which was in part, you know, triggered by the conservative resurgence following the election of Ronald Reagan and um and it was measured in terms of a sudden increase in the challenges to books in schools and libraries. And it got pretty bad. It jumped up uh, to over you know, 1,300 challenges a year. There was a counterpart in the legislatures. The Congress and the administration created a, a Mies Commission on Pornography, and we were off to the races. Well, as bad as that was, and it lasted for easily 10 years. Um, This seems to be worse. What's present in this instance is a much more direct role by elected officials and uh, people running for office who have chosen to um, exploit fears about uh, books again um, and uh, the teaching, the so-called indoctrination of, uh, of students by teachers and some librarians have been called pedophiles in in some context and accused of grooming children um, by exposing them to LGBT books. And I'm afraid there's no yeah no, there's no end in sight right now. I think because of the the role of politics is playing in this, you know, we fear that the the rest of this year uh, leading up to the midterms is going to continue to stoke the fires, and then of course we'll have a two-year um, campaign for president. So. We're all, frankly, you know, those of us who work in this field are a little tired. 
But, you know, I'm pleased to say that, you know, as, as happened in the 1980s, there is a rallying going on both at the local level and state level uh, of people who are pushing back, including kids um, who object to the fact that books are being taken out of their hands. So, um, you know, we have, a, we have a real fight underway. Chris, I wanted to ask you how communities are effectively fighting back against the censorship and uh, this moral panic that is uh, an obvious appeal to parents to be fearful and to attract votes in the midterm elections this November. What's been effective? And are, are you seeing enough parents and community, community members rising up to oppose some of these really draconian and, uh, frankly, ludicrous charges that that are being thrown around in these communities? Well, if the question is, um, are there enough? No, there there aren't enough. I, I'd say we're at an early stage um, in this fight. And, you know, what we saw in the late, in the 80s was it takes time for the opposition to form. But the first evidences of, you know, like the first, like the coming of spring are beginning to be seen. There are People who are going to their school boards and um, and speaking out against uh, the challenges, but it's a very very difficult environment, uh, and they are very much in the minority still. We've seen students protesting. Um, we've seen students forming clubs, banned book clubs, so that they can they can read. Uh, the New York Public Library and the Brooklyn Brooklyn Public Library recently opened their e-books. Um, uh, borrowing to anybody around the country, uh, to any kids who can't find the books um, or not, you know, being allowed to see the books in their schools. The American Library Association, whose membership is really under the gun, has um, begun a campaign called Unite Against Banned Books that will serve kind of as an umbrella for organizing in uh, in the states. The Texas Library Association has created. Texans for the right to read um, to serve the same purpose on a state basis, but it's it's right now it's very much an uphill fight because you have to be willing uh, to have people call you a, a pedophile or you know somebody who you know is trying to hurt uh, hurt kids in any way, and there's a lot of anger uh, in the community. So you know the the whole idea of of a review committee having to sit down in front of a public uh, gathering of, of citizens is, is a terrifying prospect in, you know, reviewing whether or not a book should stay in the, in the library or not. So I'm confident, you know, that this is going to fail at, um, at some point. The polls show that over 70 percent of Americans are against book banning, but it's going to take time, you know, to bring that, uh, that force to bear. That was Chris Finan executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship, and author of the book, From the Pomerades to the Patriot Act, A History of the Fight for Free Speech in America. Learn more about the groups fighting back against right-wing censorship and book banning in the nation's schools by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WTND in Macomb, Illinois, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, Pala Res Radio in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.